The Lever. Subscriber-supported journalism that holds power accountable. As a Lever Premium subscriber, you'll get to hear exclusive bonus content from this episode and others in your feed. To become a subscriber, go to levernews.com. Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Lever Time, the flagship podcast from The Lever, an independent investigative news outlet. I'm your host, David Sirota. On today's show, we're going to be talking about, first, the debt ceiling. Now that the Democrats will no longer control the House of Representatives in next year's Congress, and with inflation still high, a battle over America's debt limit is already brewing. We're going to go over why you should care about this seemingly esoteric issue and how it could blow up the economy. Then, for our big interview today, I'll be speaking with comedian David Cross. David has been one of the most vocal political comics of the last 20 years. He and I chatted about the state of modern comedy, the debate around cancel culture and free speech, and what is the most constructive way to make fun of people you disagree with. This week, our paid subscribers will also get a bonus segment, my interview with the author of the new book, The Petroleum Papers, Inside the Far-Right Conspiracy to Cover Up Climate Change. It details the entire history of how the fossil fuel industry has spent the last many decades actively spreading disinformation about climate science. If you want access to Levertime Premium, head over to levernews.com to become a supporting subscriber. That gives you access to all of our premium content, and you'll be directly supporting the investigative journalism that we do here at The Lever. Speaking of which, if you're looking for other ways to support our work, do us a favor. Share our reporting with your friends and family. Leave this podcast a rating and review on your podcast player. The only way that independent media grows is by word of mouth, and we need all the help we can get to combat the inane bullshit that is corporate media. As always, I'm here with producer Frank. What's up, producer Frank? A little tired today, David. I I did that thing uh, that I'm sure most of us did where we really like chilled too hard over the holiday weekend <laughs> and and didn't actually get like enough rest because I was just like eating and drinking so much. Um, so now it's caught up with me and now it's now it's sleepy Frank time. Is this is this your way of saying uh, you don't want to be at work today? Is that is that what you're actually saying? I think you are extrapolating it that way. I, I said nothing. <laughs> We're on mic. It's on record. I said nothing of the sort. <laughs> well, I feel you. I had the uh, I had a mildly extended hangover from the holidays as well. I've coming out of my slumber now. Um, before we get to the whole show, one thing we should uh, mention, one of the big pieces of news this week uh, that's happening in real time as we cover, as we record this, uh, is the uh, Joe Biden intervening uh, in the rail workers strike. Uh, I find it sad, fascinating, morbidly horrifying and fascinating, I guess, that the president who has been calling for and campaigned on a promise for paid sick leave is taking the side of the railroad barons who are denying the railroad workers the paid sick leave that Joe Biden himself promised. Uh, it's kind of – I guess I'm not all that surprised because Joe Biden will always remain Joe Biden, so I'm not exactly shocked. But this is a guy who ran around the country saying he's like Mr. Union. He's the – Pro labor president of, of all time. I, yeah, the, I find... the most the most pro union president since FDR. Correct. And what was it that he actually? What was the announcement that he made on Monday night? Is that he basically is going to side with the railroad bosses and have Congress pass the tentative deal that the workers did not agree to? Right. Is that the basic gist of it? Exactly. Uh, the details of this are, are are basically that when it comes to uh, rail workers, the there's a law on the books that allows Congress to effectively intervene uh, in a dispute between rail workers and their bosses and impose working conditions uh, if the dispute comes to a head. The idea is that rail is so essential to the functioning of the economy that Congress and the federal government has to be able to uh, end a dispute in the name of preserving the workings of the economy. Of course, Biden and the Democrats who control the Congress, or at least the lame duck session of Congress, they really do have two choices, right? They could either end the, the dispute 
by passing the paid sick leave that the workers are demanding and that Joe Biden himself has promised, right? They could use the lame duck session to pass that legislation that would require paid sick leave for all the workers in this country. That's one way to end the dispute. The other way to end the dispute is to do what Joe Biden and the Democrats apparently are going to be doing, which is use Congress's separate power to pass legislation imposing effectively the contract, the agreement that the workers rejected and imposing it onto the workers in a way that the uh, railroad barons uh, very much want him to do. The railroad barons, they've made record profits over the last few years, as we reported at the lever, paid themselves uh, $200 million in executive compensation over the last few years. Biden has a chance to stand with the workers who want the paid sick leave that he has promised, and instead he is standing with the railroad barons. It's really pathetic. It's really sad. I can't say it's all that surprising, uh, but it's it's just it, it is what it is, and we will see how it develops. We'll see how the rail the rail workers take it. I mean, this is to my mind not a way, not the way you treat essential workers. If you're admitting that these workers are essential, this is really not the way uh, to to show them that you think they're essential. Yeah, and if anyone's ever confused as to why the working class has been a abandoning the Democratic Party in droves, you can point to this exact example and be like, well, it's been shit like this for years. This is what does it. Yeah. I mean, it's not like, but to be clear, it's not like the Republicans are any better. I mean, no, that's for the sure. Thing. W- workers are, are caught in the middle of two parties who by and large, aren't willing to go to bat for them. I mean, there are certain members of Congress and certain politicians who are, but by and large, uh, both parties are not willing to really go to bat uh, for for the for for workers. And one other little point on this: Warren Buffett, whose company is the uh, owner of one of the major railways, one of the major railways that's not uh, agreeing to paid sick leave. Warren Buffett also made uh, glowing headlines last week. Uh, he's got so much cash on hand uh, that he gave $750 million worth of his company's stock to his own private foundations. Uh, so the notion that there's not money to pay for basic paid sick leave, just utterly belied by Warren Buffett's behavior, and yet Warren Buffett gets the kind of glowing headlines about the, the uh the transfer of the money to his foundations without any context that he's doing it at the same time that his company is effectively denying workers paid sick leave. But that's why you listen to Lever Time, because we're not corporate news. We're not corporate media. So we will tell you things uh, like that. We won't just say, look at Warren Buffett. He's such a hero for giving $750 million to his own foundations. Now, let's turn to our first topic, the debt ceiling. Now, before you fall asleep, Before you say the term debt ceiling is like the cure for insomnia, trust me, this is a very important issue that you need to know about. If you don't know what the debt ceiling is, it's essentially the limit on how much money the federal government is allowed to borrow. That may sound like some innocuous parliamentary bullshit, but it's become one of the most volatile political battlegrounds in the last decade. That's because if Congress doesn't reach a deal on lifting the ceiling, then the federal government could default on its debt and potentially cause a full-blown global financial crisis. For this reason, negotiations over the debt ceiling allow the minority party in Congress to extract big concessions from the president's party. We saw it in 2011. After the 2010 midterms wiped out former President Barack Obama's congressional majority and the new House majority leader, Republican John Boehner, held the debt ceiling hostage and successfully forced over $900 billion in spending cuts. That's when it last happened. Well, now it looks like history could repeat itself. Now that Republicans will control the House of Representatives in the 2023 Congress, there's already talk of an upcoming debt ceiling fight. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy has already made it clear that he would hold the debt ceiling hostage in order to try to force the Biden administration to slash programs like Social Security and Medicare. To help explain what to expect in the coming months over this issue, The Lever's Andrew Perez spoke with economist and inflation expert Lindsay Owens. She's held senior roles in Congress, working for folks like Senator Elizabeth Warren, Representative Pramila Jayapal, and Keith Ellison. She's also the executive director of the Groundwork Collaborative, a nonprofit organization focused on building a more equitable economy. Hi, Lindsay. Thanks for being here with me today. Um, I, I really appreciate your time. How, how's, how's your day going? Yeah, things are good. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Really looking forward to our conversation. 
Excellent. A few weeks ago, um, you know, House Minority Leader uh, Kevin McCarthy made, made clear that if Republicans take control of the House, which now that we know they have, um, he, he intends to hold the debt ceiling hostage in order to force the Biden administration to slash uh, social programs like Social Security and Medicare. Um, and so we want to talk about that today. And then, you know, first for our audience, I guess, would you mind explaining what the debt ceiling is and, you know, how often it has to be lifted and why it's, you know, this important? Yeah, sure. So the debt ceiling is just the legal limit on the total outstanding federal debt. So right now that's set to about $31.4 trillion per some legislation that was passed last year and signed into law by President Biden. Um, you know, the debt ceiling um, as a construct really came about um, in World War I in 1917. Congress, um, you know, wanted the Treasury to have more flexibility to fund the wartime economy and wartime efforts. And so instead of micromanaging each individual decision about what Treasury could spend on, um, they decided to give Treasury effectively a debt limit or the debt ceiling. And, um, you know, and since that time, we have you know, extended the the debt limit, um, you know, countless times with very little fanfare. Um, but in recent years, it's it's become a bit more of a political football, and and that's what McCarthy was sort of teeing up in that comment. President Biden has said that he's not going to work with Republicans to cut Social Security, but you know, based on Biden's record, you know, longtime record over forty years, this is a bit of a reversal, right? He's advocated many times for cutting Social Security. Why do you think he's changed his position? you know, at this moment? And, you know, should we take him seriously on this uh, now? Yeah. So the first thing I would say is that, um, you know, promising not to, um, you know, agree to cut Social Security or Medicare in exchange for lifting the debt ceiling is really a bare minimum promise. Um, there are a whole host of really gnarly things that could come from a debt ceiling showdown, um, aside from reforms, um, euphemism for cuts to entitlement programs. Um and we know that because we've really seen this movie before. Um, you know, in 2011, when Obama faced a debt ceiling um, showdown, um, which McConnell was there for at the time, the Tea Party insisting that in exchange for raising the debt limit, um, they should reduce the deficit. The Obama administration agreed to a decade of cuts, um, you know, via sequestration. So I think, of course, we don't want you know, cuts to Social Security or Medicare in exchange for a debt ceiling deal. But we really don't want a debt ceiling deal at all. And I think the the best thing that Biden could do to really live up to his promises, um, you know, to build a fair economy would be to take this off the table entirely. Um, you know, this is a credible threat from, Mac uh, from McCarthy. We expect him to make good on that threat in 2023. And while um, President Biden has both chambers of Congress, the House and the Senate, you know, they should get a deal done over the over the lame duck period. Um, and there are a lot of options for how to how to um, move forward with a deal, suspending the debt limit, raising the debt limit. All of that should be on the table in the next three weeks before um, Congress changes hands. So your organization, the Groundwork Collaborative, has you know been pushing back on the media narrative uh, surrounding inflation, um, and you've been citing excess corporate profits as a major factor driving inflation. Um, I guess can you talk a bit about the role that that corporate profiteering is playing in inflation, and, and what, what have you been seeing in these corporate earnings calls? When we talk about inflation, a lot of folks and um, mainstream economists like to blame inflation on you and me. <laughs> um, you know, they think you and I have too much money to spend, um, and that's what's causing inflation. They think workers are getting too good of a deal. They're, um, you know, they're seeing their wages go up, and that's causing companies to have to um, increase their prices um, to stay whole. Um, but the truth is actually a lot more complex. Um, the sources of this current inflationary moment. Um, are really multifaceted. We have inflation coming from Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, which has driven up commodities prices, oil, as well as um, at foodstuffs. We have zero COVID policies in China, which have resulted in a more um, kind of gummed up supply chain. And then we also have just rank corporate profiteering. Um, and so at Groundwork, we've really been focused on doing some really rigorous research on the extent to which corporate profiteering is driving and accelerating this current inflationary moment. And, you know, what we found was really um, 
you know, pretty startling. Um, company after company in their corporate earnings calls, um, just crowing about how inflation is great for business. Um, the fact that prices are going up generally and that their competitors are also raising prices, consumers are expecting increased prices, has given them runway to go bigger than they need to on prices, meaning they're able to both pass along their own rising costs. Their input costs are going up a little bit. Wages are going up. Um, the cost of the plastic bottles that they put their product in are going up. Um, but they're passing along those rising costs and then they're actually going for more. And that little bit of extra has resulted in two things. First, um, a 70 year high watermark for profit margins. So that's not just aggregate profits. That's the amount of profit these companies are making on each good has gone up to 70 year high record levels. And the second thing um, it has resulted in is really um, excess um, costs for families, families being squeezed by unnecessary price increases by companies who are just focused on their bottom line. So, you know, we saw this, um, you know, reading through really hundreds of, of corporate earnings calls, transcripts, um, across a whole range of industries. How does the debate surrounding inflation play into the upcoming debt ceiling fight? Um, you know, do you think it does? And then I guess what should we expect to hear from Republicans in terms of like kind of how inflation and the debt are related? I think you're absolutely right that the fact that we'll still be experiencing high inflation um, in mid 2023 when the debt ceiling fight comes to a head. Again, that's assuming that Biden and the Democrats don't get their act together and move um, to raise the debt ceiling in the lame duck, which would definitely be the priority, um, we will expect to see um, a conversation, a probably pretty misinformed conversation um, driven by Republicans in the press um, that says, we absolutely cannot raise the debt limit right now. We need to buckle down, get our spending under control, um, because the profligate spending is what has driven inflation. Um, the truth is we actually know um, that the American Rescue Plan, which was the sort of signature piece of legislation from the Biden administration to get us through the recovery, had very negligible impacts on inflation, very small impacts on inflation. And the Inflation Reduction Act um, has really no impacts on inflation in the short term and will actually bring inflation down over the medium and long term. So, um you know, it's just not the case that government spending has been behind the inflation that we're seeing. Um, but that won't, of course, stop Republicans from prosecuting that argument um, in an attempt to extract concessions, probably spending cuts a la the 2011 sequestration game, um, potentially um, something on taxes, um, which would be contraindicated, right? Um, tax cuts would be inflationary, but that certainly won't stop them from taking a run at um, some of their preferred tax cuts. Um, and then, of course, entitlement reform, um, the euphemism for raising the, the Social Security retirement age, which McCarthy, you know, just a few weeks ago said he wasn't um, taking off the table as part of his debt ceiling strategy. So I guess Republicans have kind of had a willing and eager, um, you know, ally here in, you know, kind of corporate media pundits and elite beltway economists who have kind of also looked to blame um, inflation on, uh, you know, the Biden administration's COVID relief spending. Um, you know, we've seen a lot of these kind of arguments that it's that it's actually wrong to focus on corporate profiteering. Um, you know, some of them are, have der derisively uh, called this greedflation um, and they've attacked anyone who kind of cites, uh, the, you know, corporate profits as a factor in in inflation. Um, so, you know, what has it been like on the other side of this narrative? Um, and, you know, what kind of impact is that having on on your efforts to to get your own message out? Yeah, look, um, you know, when Groundwork started this work, we were up against a pretty um, unfriendly economic establishment. Um, but we relied on our proof points, which I think are really unassailable. The first is um, the CEOs explaining that this is indeed their strategy um, on earnings calls where they are required by law not to materially misrepresent um, what they're doing, right? Um, their, their plans, their pricing strategies, their um, how, they're, how they're making their profits, how they expect their profits to grow quarter to quarter. And so I think, um, you know, the good news is because of various, um, you know, securities laws and regulations, when CEOs say something on an earnings call, we can believe them. Um, the, the second piece of data that I think is pretty um, 
compelling is this profit margins data. Um, profit margins should be shrinking, Andrew. And they're not only not shrinking, they're not only not stagnating, they're growing. Um, if you're running a lemonade stand and the cost of your worker at the lemonade stand is going up, the cost of lemons is going up, the cost of sugar is going up, the cost of plastic cups is going up, the cost of water is, is going up, um, you shouldn't be increasing your margins. Um, you should be selling each glass of lemonade at a smaller and smaller margin. Um, but that's not what we're seeing. Instead, what we're seeing is the fact that these input costs are going up is no, really no obstacle for these companies because they're passing those along fully and then going for more. So I think the data is really on our side on this. I think, you know, what's been difficult is you know, of course, there is some Beltway media that has been, um, you know, fairly dismissive of this. Although I think plenty of media, local media, um, you know, cable news, folks like you guys have covered this fairly faithfully. Um, but the, the biggest hurdle has actually been this sort of very dogmatic, ideological, almost religious um, macroeconomics establishment um, who really does not have a conception of inflation that can accommodate an understanding of power in the economy. And frankly, they don't have a conception of inflation that can accommodate a realism about what our economy looks like right now. The last time we had high inflation, like late 70s, you know, the, the economy wasn't this financialized. The economy wasn't this concentrated. But decades of financialization and concentration have changed the incentive structures for companies who need to go for broke on prices to keep profit margins high and keep juicing buybacks for shareholders. Um, but they have also created a world in which there's so little competition that when somebody is overcharging, there's nobody to run in and undercut them on prices. And so I think, um, you know, the economics establishment really needs to catch up to what we're seeing here, which is this um, kind of perfect storm interaction effect of a concentrated and financialized economy with, of course, a very stable profit motive, meeting the opportunity of inflation and using it as cover to go bigger on those price increases. Yeah, their, their argument has been um, that companies always try to make money, right? Like, that's just what they do. <laughs> but what we're saying is it's not just it's not just like that now, right? Like, <laughs> well, agreed. I mean, we, we'd like to talk about it. I mean, a, a little cheeky, but we talk about means, motive and opportunity. Um, you know, the, the counter argument that we somehow think corporations are suddenly greedy in 2021. And that's really a straw man. The motive is always there. I, I swear up and down. I was a Warren staffer. Like you take a blood oath that you believe corporations are out to make a buck. I definitely believed corporations were out to make a buck before the pandemic. I still believe that they are. The profit motive is constant. And um, then you have the means. The means is that pricing power. Um, and that comes from market power. It comes from the market share that you've amassed through building bigger over the past few decades. But you don't always exercise market power um, as pricing power. In fact, um, many times, particularly before the pandemic, um, big guys would undercut um, on pricing to snuff out the little guys. Um, but in an inflationary moment where there are supply shortages, there is an opportunity to exercise the pricing power. So you really need the means, the motive, and the opportunity to commit the crime. And the means and the mo the means and the motive were there. What this what changed in this moment is the opportunity. Well, talking about uh, means and motive and opportunity, um, the austerity hawks right now at the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget are trying to use inflation um, as justification for opposing uh, Biden's you know, limited student debt relief plan, um, and also for demanding that the government end the public health emergency and thus begin the process of pushing you know, millions and millions of, of Americans off of Medicaid. Um, so you know, what's your kind of counter argument to that line of thinking? Yeah, I mean, the Committee for the Responsible Federal Budget is nothing if not consistent. Um, they, you know, they have a clear mission, which is um, to exploit crises around debt and deficit. And you will see them rearing their heads very aggressively during the um, debt ceiling showdown whenever that appears um, as sort of cover for their real motivation, which is ultimately to gut social programs um, and, and slim down entitlements. Um, 
their funders, um, you know, that that is what they fund the, the, the committee to do. And that is their primary purpose. Um, so it's not surprising to me at all that they want to see the pandemic relief wound down, um, that's serving so many Americans. Um, that's just their standard playbook. I believe they recently put out a proposal, you know, maybe in October for $7 trillion worth of deficit reduction. I mean, you know, talk about aiming, aiming high, um, hunting big game here. You know, the, these guys are um, really relentless. Um, but the truth is that spending is what fuels a healthy economy. Um, you spend through a crisis. Um, it's what got us the historic labor market recovery that we saw in the American Rescue Plan. It's what's reinvigorating our communities and revitalizing the manufacturing class with the money that's been spent on the Chips and Science Act, you know, the semiconductor proposal, as well as the green energy investments in the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, so I actually think you know, while the Committee for the Responsible Federal Budget still has a strong footprint in Washington, they sort of no longer reflect the times very well. I think folks, um, the Biden administration has moved beyond that approach. I mean, of course, Biden still talks about the need for deficit reduction. And, you know, because the Inflation Reduction Act was was more than paid for, it did result in net deficit reduction. Um, but I think, you know, the the shift has been around an understanding that um, it's really spending in you and me in our communities um, that grows a healthy economy because we are the economy um, and cutting back on spending or shipping tax cuts to the rich and thinking it'll, um, you know, come back down to us on the backside has really, I think, fallen out of favor. And, and the committee's perspective is is really outdated at this point. Lindsay, th thank you so much for joining us. Um, this has been extremely informative. Um, where, where can our audience find your work? Yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter if, if Twitter still exists at um, Owens Lindsay One, and you can follow the Groundwork Collaborative at www.groundworkcollaborative.org. Great, Th thanks so much. Thanks, Andrew. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with my interview with the great comedian David Cross. Welcome back to Lever Time. For our interview today, I'm going to be speaking with comedian, actor, writer, and director David Cross. You probably know him. He's fantastic. For the last 20 years, David has been one of the most subversive comedians in modern comedy. Though his comedy isn't strictly political, there are few people who do political comedy as effectively as he does. Back in 2002, he was one of the first comics to ruthlessly mock George W. Bush and the War on Terror. And in 2005, he openly criticized fellow comic Larry the Cable Guy for performing homophobic and racist material. He's also done comedy about COVID-19 and the hostility to basic public health science. Here's a clip. A partial list of things equal to or greater than the physical and mental pain and suffering experienced while wearing a mask while shopping having a ladybug on your shoulder. <laughs> Applying slightly too much chapstick. <laughs> Talking on a hot phone. When a dog shakes its rainwater off on you. A Band-Aid that won't stay on. <laughs> Waiting for someone in a wheelchair to board the bus. And a maraschino cherry. Those are, that's just a. On top of his stand-up, David's varied career has spanned television, film, and music videos. He's the co-creator of the groundbreaking sketch comedy series, Mr. Show with Bob and David. And he played Dr. Tobias Funke in five seasons of the Emmy award-winning series, Arrested Development. He also uses his comedy for specific political causes, as we will discuss in our interview. It's safe to say there are few comics out there whose careers have been as subversive yet successful as David Cross's. I was excited to get the chance to talk to him about the state of modern comedy, how to make fun of your enemies, and what, if anything, is keeping him hopeful these days. David Cross, thank you so much for taking time with us today. Absolutely. Um, big fan. Um, I'm a fan in part, not just of your 
stuff on TV shows that I watch, but you're also a, a comedian who talks a lot about politics, which I feel like is um, not always the safest or easiest thing to do. And a lot of comedians kind of avoid it. In, in, 20, in 2002, you were criticizing George W. Bush and the war on terror way, way, way before it was acceptable to do so. Uh, and I remember this because I was working on Capitol Hill at the time, uh, right after 9-11. And, and it, it felt like nobody could say anything, was allowed to say anything bad about George Bush or the war on terror. And in your most recent stand-up special, you rail against conservatives uh, and their response to the COVID-19 pandemic. So you've got this this tradition of actually saying out loud the things you're in some ways not allowed to say out loud. My first question for you then is what initially drew you to political comedy and 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 finding comedy in the politics of the day? Well, first, let me say that I don't think it's completely accurate to say that it was just conservatives who were sure, sure. anti-mask. Um, sure. There were a lot of quote-unquote libertarians or whoever, you know, wellness hippies, whatever. Just to be fair to to conservatives, um, it wasn't just conservatives. It was a, it was kind of across the board people who were anti-mask for various different reasons. Sometimes it was freedom, and sometimes it was misinformed ideas about health. But anyway, just to clarify that. But to answer your question, and again, uh, not to be so uh, uh, contrarian, but I don't consider myself a political comedian. I never have. Uh, and I balk at it a little bit because so much of my comedy isn't political. Uh, some definitely is. Uh, but my recipe for a, a stand-up show that I take out on the road, or, and certainly what it becomes when I'm, uh, when I'm cutting it down for a, a live taping, is, is roughly third. So a third absurdist, just silly joke, dad joke shit, uh, a third anecdotal, this crazy thing happened to me, and then a third of it is political or religious or uh, cultural or whatever you want to call it. Um, I just, I, my guess is that stuff stands out a bit because it's um, pretty biting and it is, uh, as you said, it's got a, there's a bit of like, oh my God, I can't believe he said that <laughs> too soon kind of quality to it. So it's so it sort of, you know, I think it, it feels like it's, um, you know, like most of my stand-up is political, but it's, it's just simply not true, you know? You, you do a lot of comedy on some of the uh, – about some of the dumbest shit in our lives, like shit well, that's I'm just a, so American. stupid. I'm American. Right, right. No, no. I don't mean that, that your comedy is There's a wealth of dumb. material. Right. Exactly. What I mean is like you're, you're poking fun at how stupid shit – how stupid the stupid shit really is. I mean I want to – just on the, on the COVID stuff because it really resonated with me. The idea that, that, that people were rejecting the basic science. I mean – you're the one poking fun at how ridiculous uh, it is that, that, you know, not listening to science is apparently freedom. Like that's the greatest expression of freedom in America is to just not listen to, to the science that's trying to protect you from dying. Um, you're right. We live in a world where there's a wealth of that, uh, uh, those kinds of things to make fun of. I just wonder over the course of a, you know, I'm 47. I don't know how old you are. You probably roughly um, that age uh, or 111. older. No, okay, you're 111 years yeah. old. Like, I just curious, do you think things have become stupider in the last like 10, 15, 20 years? Or has it always been this ridiculous and stupid? And it's just we're more people are aware of it. Well, I, I think it's always been this ridiculous, but more people have a platform and you're, you're, uh, privy just from, you know, waking up and, uh, accessing, uh, I mean, when I was a kid, there were, you know, there was like three networks and a bunch of kind of satellite, uh, independent stations, but you know, there wasn't, there wasn't the, there weren't 482 channels, uh, where you could access people spewing nonsense and you couldn't, uh, wake up, turn on your phone and access even more people, you know, angry, angry and ignorant uh, people. So uh, our being, access to stupidity is, is greater. 
Yeah, I think that's the the <laughs> difference. You know, I think the it's less of our access to stupidity and their stupidity accessing us, if that makes sense. Like, yeah, yeah. it's uh, it's just out there whether you want to see it or not. And uh, people have cell phones and they can capture video of you know, people being just awful in a Seven Eleven or the bus or an airplane or in line at Starbucks or a gas station or anywhere. Cops, you know, just uh, uh, corrupt cops can we can capture on, uh, you know, wh- whatever it is. There's it's just all kind of in our face now. I don't yeah, think those I don't think those people sprouted up once the once technology allowed them to. I think they've always been there. That's a really good point. Now, let's turn to the questions uh, some of the questions surrounding stand-up comedy. It's come under intense scrutiny in the last few years, although I think feel like stand-up comedy has always been a source of controversy. Mm-hmm. The central debate of late if, if focused- done correctly. <laughs> exactly. Uh the central debate right right now is focused on what kind of material is appropriate or offensive to perform. Uh, you know, some conservatives would say it's a free speech issue, that audiences are just too sensitive these days. Uh, some folks on the left uh, would argue that bigoted material, you know, racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic, whatever it is, that shouldn't be performed at all. My question to you is, what do you think is at the heart of this debate? Is it actually about free speech? And how do you think about these things when you're forming your own comedy? I think it's tribal. I think it is uh, uh, emotional and not logical. Um, I think there are some comics who I I understand why they're taking the position they're taking because it's about semantics and logic and uh, things like that. Uh, but I wish they didn't because people get hurt. I don't think it's, it, there's, it's very tricky and it's, um, uh, in a good way. And it's, there is, uh, freedom of speech and that is important. Um, and I believe that if you want to go on stage and say, hurtful, reprehensible things in the end of the the umbrella of comedy, uh, you have that right. But then everyone else has a right to uh, protest it. And and, and, and the thing that people seem to forget uh, is, you know, for better or worse, uh, oftentimes both, we live in a... uh, capitalist society, free market capitalist society. And if a uh, a club owner or you can extrapolate it out to, you know, all the way to Adidas or whatever you want to say, if a company, a club owner, a brand uh, feels like it's not, uh, whether it's, you know, they agree with it or not or disagree with it or not, the, the things that somebody is saying, if it doesn't make a business sense for them to do that, then they won't do that. And that's end of sentence, period. That's it. So people can, you know, try to shut people down, cancel them as it were. So that's a very uh, um, simplistic, uh, uh, reductive thing, this idea of cancel culture. Um and it's not a culture. It's just a thing. People are reacting to this stuff, whether you or I agree with it or not. Um, uh, they're making their voice heard and they have access uh, to uh, making their voice heard in a way that didn't exist 10 years ago. And that's what they're doing. So people, I believe, have a right to say what they want to say. I wish they wouldn't. I think there are some cases where if you are uh, directly getting people hurt or killed, then there should be uh, consequences for that. But if it's if you're making a joke, which I or you or we all might find very distasteful and um, forgetting even the, the subjective idea of whether it's funny or not, but just making, you know, making fun of trans people. And uh, I wish that those comics wouldn't do that, uh, but they have a right to. And then everybody else has a right to say, I'm going to try to 
get you to not perform at this uh, space? And if they're successful, okay. And if they're not successful, okay as well. Right. I mean, I think can- cancel culture is kind of a euphemism for uh, uh, somebody says something, uses their free speech rights to say something, and then other people use their free speech rights to criticize that person uh, and to and to create a situation where that person is not platformed. I think, you know, people being canceled for the wrong reasons can sometimes happen. It can go, it can go too absolutely. far. Absolutely. Yeah, kind of absolutely. St- like a Salem witch hunt kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But I but I also think like cancel culture is just basically in a lot of ways it's just kind of it's it's the internet. My my view on this debate about comedians is the thing that gets me about it, somebody like Dave Chappelle, whose past material I've really liked and whose current material I really – a lot of it I don't like, the transphobic stuff and the like and the uh, the, the stuff about Jews and the like, is that it's sort of like which targets are you choosing, right? Like if you're, if you're up there and you're making a social critique, because in a lot of ways comedy is basically a funny social critique. You're saying out loud the things that, that, that you're pointing out truths or saying out loud the things that we all know to be true. And, 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 but, but that, that it's, it's target selection. Com- I, in my view, the best comedy is the comedy that targets the people who have real power. Like, and the people who have real power in America, it's it's pretty obvious. It's like billionaires and and, and giant corporations have real power. I, I wonder if 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 you uh, agree with that. If you agree that that a lot of this stuff is about who you're choosing or what you're choosing to ridicule, uh, make fun of, or point or, or kind of point the spotlight at. Yeah, I think that's most of it, really. Um, and different groups, uh, you know, m- mostly care about themselves. Uh, and um, it's it's a it's just kind of a bummer when it's so it's just easy to do, and then you the the laughter at those jokes feels uh, hurtful and cruel, mm-hmm. and uh, and doesn't sit well with me and you know to to cite dave as an example uh i i you know still think he's the king and he's amazing and even the stuff that i am not as comfortable with i don't think i it it affected me and affects me as much as it affects other people but i still wince at it and go and i and it, it's <laughs> You know the stuff on SNL about Jews. I thought, uh, I thought it was funny, and I know Jews that didn't care for it. Uh, and but I still, I mean, I can defend it intellectually, um, and I, uh, you know, that's part of being a comic, for better or worse. For most sure, I, th- I, I think my 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 issue, one of my issues with it was, it's like. You have a you have a platform. Why are you choosing it to focus it on that? I mean, granted, that's my own personal preference, right? I prefer. Yeah, I, prefer I think that's. Comedy. I I understand that. I get that totally. Uh, and that's how I feel about the things that really deeply affect me. Uh, but um, yeah, I, I guess that's it. it kind of comes down to that. Like, oh, why you got to go after them or that guy or her or you know? It's like. Uh, like people making um, Monica Lewinsky jokes back in the day, like she was a fucking victim, man. She, I feel just terrible for that woman, yeah. and she didn't ask for any of this. And and I mean, it was disgusting what Clinton did to her, and uh, and you know that certainly wouldn't wash today. But uh, you know, to to make jokes about her, like that, just to use as an example, and then anybody who's um, trans, uh, I just feel like those, it's the, it's the gay joke of, it's the current gay joke from the sixties and seventies where people were getting hurt and killing themselves. And, uh, and it also, unfortunately, uh, and it, this goes back to the people laughing at it and those, that laughter feels so vicious, um, to that person to, uh, uh, it it's it creates an a, a, it chips away at the acceptance of that kind of hate, and I I personally have a problem with that. 
I could, I guarantee you, I could think of 10 really funny trans jokes. I wouldn't say them. I would not, I don't want to hurt anybody. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's, again, it goes back to, it goes back to what you want to use your platform for, which is a good segue into my question about where you get your, your, where, where you get your, your own politics and value system. Because Look, I, I've worked with very closely with Adam McKay, as an mm-hmm. example. A- and Adam McKay is a guy who makes clear what his values are, and he puts his values into into the you know the entertainment products that he he creates. You obviously are somebody who puts your own politics, ideology, values into that. Uh, you're somebody who the reason we one of the reasons I. I appreciate your voice so much is you're not just willing to criticize conservatives. You're also willing to criticize the ridiculousness of the kind of democratic establishment. Mm -hmm. Before we get to some of that, I just want to ask, where'd you get that politics from? Like, where's that, where's that come from? Because not a lot of people our age, um, growing up in the, you know, the Clinton era through the Bush era through, you know, through the early Obama era, uh, uh, Real, like that was the era where being on the quote unquote left or having kind of lefty opinions or whatever was seen as like you're just like not allowed to it, you're not really welcome in, in the in a lot of political or even entertainment spaces. So I'm just where'd you where'd you get your politics? Well, I disagree with that uh, completely. Um, just just to well, I don't think if you were aligning yourself with Clinton or Obama that. Uh, that you weren't no, no, allowed I, in certain spaces. Let me be, cl- let me, let me be clear. Yeah. Let me be clear. What I mean is there wasn't very much of a space to the so-called left of Clinton or uh, in the era oh, of, part, oh, of, part- of partisanship, right? It, it's like you're either on the blue were... team or you're on the red team. And there's no right. like So you're space. saying like progressives or democratic socialists. Yeah, exactly. Okay, exactly. I see. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, there was always, you know, there was always a... Dennis Kucinich or, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders or somebody or Ralph Nader or whoever kicking around. But um, uh, I but to answer your question about where I got it from, I'd say mostly it's my mom. uh, And, you know, I I was um, I moved around quite a bit when I was young, like every year I was in a different place every year, uh, different school, different, you know, cultural setting uh every single year until i was in fourth grade i moved down to atlanta where i ended up you know living. why were you moving so much uh my dad just got fired a lot and uh um he wouldn't take responsibility for anything and then uh, eventually he left which was you know uh awful but also maybe perhaps for the best and uh and so we ended up settling in Atlanta when I was nine, uh, and well, not even Atlanta. It was, it was a, a kind of very rural suburb of Atlanta, um, which is now all built up. Atlanta's huge now, but back when I was growing up, it wasn't. And uh, um, I was in a small town called Roswell, and uh, and I think that then it became not just uh, kind of my mom's. Uh, ideals and guidance. Uh, um, and she was a, hardly a activist lefty person. She was not at all. She was just, I think part of it was she grew up in New York, uh, and she was Jewish and, um, found herself in this, in this place with three kids, no money, literally just in debt. My dad really did a number and, uh, uh, and nothing, no, no, skills, no training, and then three kids and, and less than no money. And, um, and then, you know, had to deal with kids who were going, well, why, you know, life's, you know, this isn't fair. And why can't I have this? And, uh, how come I'm always hungry? (laughs) And, um, and, uh, uh, and having to explain stuff and, and, and didn't, you know, did never, there was never like, well, Jesus, uh, will take care of everybody in his own way. <laughs> there, was, there was an absence of that. So it was really trying to explain to, to kids who were, uh, uh, certainly comparatively to the other kids in, in the apartment complex or 
school, like I was definitely a little precocious and inquisitive and curious about why things were the way they were and, 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 and kind of wanted to know about, I've read a lot, uh, and wanted to know about what was happening in DC that was affecting us, uh, even at an early age. And, um, and things just seemed so they didn't make any sense. And my mom would try to explain it to me, uh, like I was an adult, not like I was a kid. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of that came from her. I think most of it really. And then eventually you're, you're given those tools so that when you're 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 years old, and you're still in the same situation, you kind of grow into these, uh, understandings of why things are the way they are. And, uh, and, you know, what some people on the right would call indoctrination. Well, let's talk a little bit about the Democratic Party, because, again, as I Why? said, you're one of... Ugh, what a boring <laughs> oh, well, look, source of you're... frustration. Totally, totally. And, and you're one of the, in, in my mind, you're one of the few comics uh, at the level that you're at who is who sort of has that critique. We here at the lever are are regularly critical of the Biden administration and we're critical of the of the right. We do that kind of reporting. Uh and and of course, uh we're we regularly scrutinize the Democratic Party mostly for being ineffectual legislators while simultaneously acting like they're the last bastion against rising fascism in the United States, which Ugh, yeah, that's you hit the nail on the head. They they puffed themselves up as well. They they just were given such a gift with how far the pendulum swung that they they can make a feeble argument like we're the last you know as you said the last bastion of uh, the last hope for democracy in America, which is such a crock of shit. And uh, if we were truly democratic, we'd have several parties that were viable, and they could all you know uh, work together. Uh, in whatever Congress would look like then, and uh, uh, right. I mean, what I say not. is about if you're if you're if you're worried about democracy, if you're worried about the democracy crisis, wait till you find out about how every single election in America is basically bought by big money, right? Like, what are we really talking about when we talk about the the, the well? The and we also have an we still have the electoral 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 sure. college, uh, which is anti democratic, and uh, you know, there's no way. You know, uh, Wyoming should have as much of a say as New York and, you know, uh, all the way down the line. Um, it's ridiculous. So my question, my, my question as a, as a, for you as a comedian is, do you find it harder to make fun of Democrats than Republicans? Because obviously Republicans are like a kind of overt clown show in a lot of ways, Republican politicians. Do you find it harder to make fun of, of Democrats? Do you find that the comedy is harder to land when it's about uh, Democrats uh, by virtue of the fact that the Republicans uh, sort of are kind of optically so much more ridiculous? Um, I, I mean, it, in, a, in a sense, it would you wouldn't want to hear an hour of that. But uh, um, and it's easier in the sense that the the people on the right, and the far right are so crazy and 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 for lack of a better word stupid uh it's almost like why you know there's there's just a wealth of material there and with the democrats it's kind of the same thing it's the same idea of they're hypocrites they're feckless they're and you can make some jokes but it's just doesn't have the buffet uh of <laughs> options you know, the Republicans it's the are of, a smorgasbord. Yeah, it's kind of the same thing. And you could definitely do some, and you should do some, or one should do some. But it's just, you, you wouldn't want to hear... Uh, I mean, if you do want an hour of that, go, watch uh, Gutfeld or whatever the fuck it is. Uh, you know, that's... that's uh, There's not an hour's worth of material. There's the, You can make your points, but, you know, you can't do an hour of that and, and make it feel like there's been a bunch of variety. Yeah, I think I, I think part of the reason the the right has had trouble with comedy is because the sort of right wing critique of the Democrats is actually 
both not that funny and not really, in a lot of ways, not really accurate. I'm talking about this kind of far right critique of the Democrats. That mm-hmm. is actually what's more funny is the is a kind of uh, left of center critique of the Democrats is more kind of darkly comedic. And actually, that 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 raises a question that that I've been wanting to ask you about uh, comedians. Uh, a lot of white male comedians seem to be. I get the sense that there's like a lot of movement to kind of the right and it's kind of this this sort of kind of rooted in not liking liberals or not liking the cartoon of what a liberal is. But it kind of butts up against the idea uh, – and maybe the idea is wrong – the idea that a lot of entertainers are inherently liberal. Uh, do you think there's been a kind of, sh- a kind of shift or drift of people in uh, – uh, you know – white male comedians to a more conservative viewpoint is that kind of over 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 interpreted and if the, if it if it isn't if it is actually happening what do you think what do you think it's about um i don't know uh i i i think there might be something to that uh i think it's a reaction to what we were talking about earlier where you this this um self-defense self-preservation in a in a talking about the viability of what you do for a living sense of like, Hey, uh, this has gone too far. You, you can't tell me what and what not to say. And, and it's a, it's an understandable reaction. I don't necessarily have that, but I, I, if, if a bunch of people that you don't know that are, uh, that talk and dress like and sound like and, appear like the, as you mentioned, the cartoon version of the the leftist or whatever, then it's a reaction to that. And I, I, I get it, you know, I, I, not that that would make somebody become, you know, uh, bigoted, but, uh, I, I think it's mostly a reaction to, Hey, they're trying to shut me down. They're trying to mm-hmm. shut you down, and uh, and people who might not necessarily, you know, slide over into that world uh, might. And and don't forget about the 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 very very strong attractive pull of a bunch of strangers accepting you, and a bunch of people going, "Hey, man." We're with you. We think you're funny. People you've never met, you never will meet, but they're clicking the like button and the heart button and the uh, thumbs up button. And, you know, some people have, uh, they need that. They, mm-hmm. that's to them is valid validation and, uh, uh, it's important to them. And, and that, you know, uh, will feed people and, and, and buoy them and make them feel like, yeah, I'm taking, I'm de- definitely doing the right thing. And I'm, I'm right. I knew I was right. And, uh, and then, you know, the algorithm gets a hold and, and then you become, you know, you go further either to the left or the right or until everybody meets in the middle again. I mean, this is, this is uh, the way you just articulated, I think gets to something so important, which is that there's a, there's kind of a reward system, especially on the right, uh, that, and whether it's the algorithm or, you know, think tanks, uh, uh, pundit spots, it's, 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 it's sort of a vast reward system for moving to the right. And I think that, well, that reward is financial too. I mean, there's, for there's, sure. there's, uh, no shortage of grifting on either side, but it feels like there's more way more on the right to me and there's because there's, there's, there's way more resources there's way more of a reward right. system and i think you know your point about people in the who are left of center or in the quote-unquote center whatever that term means who get criticized by liberals let's say and then react by moving to the right i often think about it like you you have to keep a check on your values on on if you have values what your ideology what your your viewpoint is in order to not let the criticism push you into a push you to the right just for the sake of punching back at your critics right like i think that dynamic oh well, i'm being criticized yeah but I, yeah but but some people are like well there's a reward system over there on the right 
Like I'm going to be rewarded for that. And so kind of like screw these liberals who are criticizing me, even if they're like, uh, 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 even if they may have valid criticism, I've got a reward system over here. I feel like that's a lot of, uh, of the dynamic. Well, but yeah, but it, it's more insidious than that. It, it is exactly what you said, but it's not as con- you're not as conscious of it. I, th- I think right, just, right. just to defend some of these people, I think it's a, it doesn't happen, you know, overnight it's a gradual thing that people you know that's it's human nature and whether you're stronger than that uh or you're susceptible to it is 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 depends on the individual but i mean i i can see how it works i mean it's a it works it works for you know uh you you get if you get validated by all these people and you're feeling love and uh you know the inverse is true. The the it, you can it can create a a really terrible, awful situation and drive somebody to uh, perhaps violence. Uh, um, you know to to hit them with the with the the other people saying we hate you, you suck, you mm-hmm. uh, you're worthless, you're a piece of shit. I remember when you used to be funny, asshole. You know that also has an effect and and they're both so if you're getting that on one side and then the other side is going hey man we love you we get you yeah uh, it depends on how strong you are but a lot of people i don't think can withstand that and then are happy to do that and then make a very comfortable living speaking to those folks and being part of them so yeah it's it's unfortunate one last question. I, 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 I think it's fair to say that some of your material is rooted in frustration, anger uh, that's directed at our current political system, probably why I'm drawn to it because uh, I feel the same way. But at the same time, you've actively engaged in constructive political projects. For instance, earlier this year, you performed in a fundraising event for Abortion Access Front. Mm-hmm. Last year, you made a great uh, informative video for the Gravel Institute. Mm-hmm. I guess – I guess, would you consider, I mean, would you consider yourself a cynic, but you're not cynical enough or to, to kind of just be a critic and not be engaged? And if you're, if you're not a cynic, I'm, I'd be curious to know what's giving you hope these days. Well, yes, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm a cynic, but I am definitely cynical about, uh, certain things. Um, but that doesn't mean I have, uh, Unless I'm misunderstanding what, and I and I'm saying this truly, I, I might not have a full understanding of of cynicism, but I uh, there's st- there are still things that offer you know optimism and hope, uh, and uh, mostly I would say it's it's my young daughter and her friends uh, that uh, whether I want to be or not, whether I can, uh, I could just take the easy way in being a, a cynical about everything. Um, I can't afford that for her, for her sake and for her friend's sakes. Uh, uh, so I find the hope and uh, the fight there, um, so that she can live in a world where you know it's not as awful as. And and in part we've done that by living in New York. I, I you know it's a very hopeful, optimistic place where I live, and uh, you know I'm not uh, susceptible as most people here aren't uh, to that nonsense about how dangerous and awful and <laughs> you know it's just not that's just not the case. I mean the the facts don't um, back that up, uh, and so it's kind of easy for me to say because I we can live comfortably in a very progressive city, and um, you know she goes to a, a very diverse school down the street, and um, and you know she's in the minority, and uh, and you know so she gets to see uh, all kinds of people from all over the world, uh, all kinds of economic uh, status, and. Um, and that's truly, that's, I think, simplistically, that is the actual, that's the greatest thing that you can have to change society for the better is access to people other than yourselves and your 
mommy and daddy and aunts and uncles and the the people in your cul-de-sac. Um, it's 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 there's no better uh, prescription for uh, trying to counteract some of the the hate and the bigotry and all that stuff. So that gives me hope. And when I go, you, are you in New York? I'm in Denver. You're in Denver. Oh, yeah. um, boy, uh, I was just there. I got to, uh, you got some stuff to fix there downtown. Um, <laughs> we do. <laughs> uh, but, um, oh, but there's like, uh, this thing that, that's uh, the Brooklyn children's museum, which is one of the most beautiful places I've been to. Uh, it, that gives me hope when I bring my daughter there. David Cross, his most recent comedy special is I'm from the Future. You can find it at officialdavidcross.com. David, thank you so much for taking time today. Absolutely. Thank you. That's it for today's show. As a reminder, our paid subscribers who get Levertime Premium get to hear our bonus segment, my conversation with the author of the fascinating and terrifying new book, The Petroleum Papers, Inside the Far-Right Conspiracy to Cover Up Climate Change. Not only had they figured out the causes and impacts of climate change by the early 90s, but they had a pretty good idea of how to fix this whole thing. And please be sure to like, subscribe, and write a review for Levertime on your favorite podcast app. One last favor to ask. If you like this podcast and our reporting, please tell your friends and family about The Lever and the work we're doing here. Forward our emails to them. Encourage them to subscribe. The only way independent media grows is by word of mouth. So we need all the help we can get to continue doing the work that we're doing. Until next time, I'm David Sirota. Keep rocking the boat.